So we're just continuing in 2 Corinthians. We started chapter 1. What I want to do is go back because we were kind of in the middle of verses 3 through 7 when we stopped last week. I had more material, or two weeks ago, I had more material than I thought I was going to have uh, in this, <clears throat> which is not necessarily a bad thing. But let me reread 3 through 7, and then I'll pick up where we were. So Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So where we left off last time was uh, I talked <clears throat> about this guy named David Augsburger, uh, who I really appreciate. Uh, I'm going to talk about him again, not this coming Sunday, but next Sunday when we talk a lot about forgiveness. He's a kind of a forgiveness guru. And I had him as an, an instructor uh, for one of my classes when I was at Fuller Seminary. Um, but he's the guy that taught, uh, taught me anyway about the difference between sympathy, empathy, and interpathy. So sympathy being the lowest level of sorrow that you can feel for somebody else. It's not bad, it's just the lowest level. It doesn't take a whole lot of effort. Gee, I feel bad for you. Uh, empathy, though, is actually trying to put yourself, think about what it would be like to be in that person's situation. So you're now you're really thinking, trying to see the situation from their perspective. Uh, and by the way, that would be empathy would be a really important part of conflict resolution as well. Trying to see a person's point from their perspective and not just yours. But then Augsburger talks about the power of interpathy. Interpathy is when you have actually experienced the thing that that person is going through. So now you have a new level of credibility with which to be able to speak into somebody's life. Um, because you've been through exactly what they've been through. Uh, it's the idea that um, uh, although I'm a pastor and I have two advanced degrees and I read a lot of books, um, most people who are addicted to meth and really want to not be addicted to meth anymore, they might talk to me, but they're not going to talk to me a whole lot about recovery from that because I've never actually experienced that. And they know that there are people available who have been addicted to meth and who are now recovering from it that they could go and talk to and say, all right, you know what I'm going through now, I'm gonna to talk to you and that's helpful. So that's the idea of interpathy. And interpathy is actually what Paul is getting at in this passage. He's saying, look, uh, when we suffer, that allows us to understand what it's like for you when you suffer. And you need to remember that the greatest interpathy of all is Jesus who suffered on the cross. So he understands your suffering as well. And so we can live in community in, in, uh, in relation to this, and we can help each other when we're in community. But one of the big parts about being in community is knowing people enough to be able to find those people who have suffered or been through the same things that you've been through. That's a really important part of community. And that's why this next point, which we didn't get to two weeks ago, I want to make this point because it's really important. 
the notion of community when it comes to interpathy is absolutely indispensable. There is a challenge, and this doesn't happen only in the church, but it happens a lot in the church. It's the challenge of people who want all the benefits of a faith community without ever investing in the faith community. You understand what I'm getting at? Okay. So it's the person who um, attends once a month, and when they do attend, they show up five minutes late and they leave five minutes early. They would never think of being in an RC. They would never think of serving. They would never think of saying hello to anybody. They just sort of pop in and pop out. They don't know anybody in the church, but then something disastrous happens in their life, and they're saying, I need to be first in line to get help. Okay? Now, it's possible that they might be able to get help, but what they need to remember is that there's 500 other people in this, in this particular community. At Gateway, it's 2,500 people. Uh, it's going to be really hard for you to be first in line if you don't know anybody and nobody knows you. Uh, what do emergency rooms do when people come in all busted up and broken up and everything? It's, it's called... What? They do triage. Uh, this, may be, this may be new information for you, but churches also do triage. Because we get called by a lot of people, and people have a lot of problems and a lot of issues and stuff. And so part of that triage for the church, honestly, is going to be, well, this person we know, and they're a part of the community, uh, we, we, know how to, we know them, and we know their issues. We know others, and we know their issues. We know um, everybody's resources. It's going to be a lot easier to be able to connect those people that we know that are in community, that are in relationship, than it is somebody who's really just coming at us as a sort of a consumer of our spiritual goods and products. That's not to say that we're not going to help them. I'm just saying it's a lot harder to help people who are not in community and, and in relationship because you have no basis for interpathy. You can try to do the empathy thing, but no basis for interpathy. Now... I said I've seen this in other places too. So uh, uh, you might know I, I've been a part of something called the Executives Association of Greater Phoenix for the last 35 years. It's about the only other thing I've done uh, as long as being married to Jackie. <laughs> okay, which by the way we were married 35 years this last Sunday, and and we and we celebrated by talking about David and Bathsheba. What a coincidence! <laughs> So wonderful, so beautiful. Anyway, um, so I've been part of this association for 35 years. It's, I, I, it's been great for me. It's, a, um, it's the largest networking association. It, let, me, let me rephrase that because things have changed in the last 15 years. It's the largest in-person networking association in Maricopa County. There's about 100 different businesses uh, in this association with... Uh, about 110 represent, individual representatives. We have breakfast together every Thursday morning for an, for an hour and a half. And, and we, ha we work through a program where we all get to introduce ourselves. We all get to say what we do. Uh, it's one of those things where you have categories of business and you can't have more than one lawyer. You can't have one more than account one accountant. You can't have more than uh, one this that you know, what, anyway you get the idea so nobody's competing with each other but we're networking and we're helping each other and we use each other in 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 the association uh, for our businesses and things like that by the way there is not a category in the executives association for churches I'm actually what's known as an honorary member in other words I'm retired 
I initially got in because I was the women's retailer. That was, that was a category. I, that's what I was in for. And so I was in it for seven years, and then uh, we sold the business, and so I retired. So I was the youngest honorary member in the history of, of Egypt. It's called Egypt, E-A-G-P, Egypt. Young, youngest honorary member ever in the history of, of Egypt. Uh, and I did eventually go to them and say, look, I, I'm still functioning as an a- active member. I'm still getting all the benefits of being a part of this community. Um, but I'm also not paying active member fee uh, dues. I'm just paying for my breakfast and, and, and uh, some of the materials. I'm not paying the actual dues. I'm happy to join as an active member and, and pay the dues. And so the membership, I know I'm off topic, but I think it's interesting. So you have to listen to it. So, um, uh, so the membership committee got together with the board of directors and they worked on this for three months and then they finally came back and said, we don't want to open the Pandora's box of having a category for churches because then we might have to have a category for synagogues and a category for postmodern spirituality and a category for atheists and a category for whatever. So they said, we're fine with you receiving the benefits of the association while being an honorary member. So I've just stayed in there. And, and in, the, in, in more recent years, I've actually become somebody who they never used to let honorary members serve on committees but now they're letting them do it because they wanted me to start serving on some committees as long as I was there. Anyway, so, but here's the thing. Um, one of the uh, committees that I've, I've served on and off in the last 20 years is the new member committee where I actually get with new members and I help mentor them, you know. And I always tell them the same thing. I tell them, this is it. You will get out of the executives association what you put into it. And what you have to put into the executives association is time and participation. So if you show up to one meeting a month and you come in late and you leave early, uh, and I've seen this happen so many times, a, a firm will join and, their, and, their, and their, um, their representative will join and they'll be in for a year and they'll come to maybe 15 meetings in a year. We have 52 meetings a year. Well, we don't have one third. Um, on Thanksgiving, so 51 meetings a year, okay? Uh, they come to maybe 15 meetings. They don't come early and talk to people. That's, that's one of the best parts is the, is the early 20 minutes when everybody's sitting around drinking coffee and talking to each other. That's one of the best parts of it. You know, they don't come early. They come right when the program starts and then they leave right away. They never visit anybody else's business. They never have coffee or lunch with anybody. They never do anything. And then after a year, they say, this just isn't working for me. I'm not getting any business out of this. And, and it's just like church. They get mad at, at Egypt. They curse Egypt, and then they leave. It's just like church, <laughs> you know. It's, always, it's never their fault. It's always the organization's fault, you know. But it's true. It, it is true that you get out of whatever you are investing in. And so, and so this interpathy thing works best when you are invested in community and everybody has an, has an opportunity to know how you're resourced, what you're good at, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, what are the things that you've been through in life so now we can start connecting people. So Paul's talking about that here in 1 Corinthians. It's also that the community can sharpen each other. So I just... Uh, I was gone three and a half weeks this summer. I'd never done that before. Um, and, and when I came back, if you were here the first Sunday, I, I was back and spoke again. I said, I'm never going to do that again for two reasons. One, I was actually away from Jackie for 15 days. 
And it was really hard on Jackie. No, it was hard on me, okay? It was hard on me. I just, I didn't realize I would miss her that much. I talked to her every day. But here's the other thing. I missed this place. Now, I didn't miss the preaching necessarily, although I love to preach. I didn't miss the preaching. I just missed being in community here with my people. And, and I didn't, I, I was away, part of it, I was, I was on a study break, but I didn't feel sharpened during those three and a half weeks because I wasn't with all of you being sharpened in that way because this community really sharpens me. It sharpens Tyler and Tyler and it sharpens Trey as well. And so the community is important because it sharp, we sharpen each other, because we applaud one another, we rejoice with those who rejoice, we, we serve one another, we protect one another, and we mourn with one another. So we rejoice with uh, those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep, okay? So that's really important. At least that's the biblical theory behind it. And I've seen it actually work in practice as well. It's also important to recognize that Christ was the first to suffer and that is actually where the power is. So again, Paul keeps bringing this back to to Jesus' sufferings on uh, the cross. It's the cross and the resurrection. And whatever affliction we think we have, and trust me, you can ask Jackie, nobody whines like I do. I am the world's greatest whiner, okay? And over the littlest things, all right? But whatever affliction we think we have, whatever affliction I think I have, Jesus had a much greater affliction when he went to the cross. And that's the thing that we need to remember. Um, Peter actually writes about this. Let me see if I can find it. It's uh, 1 Peter 4. Let me just read it for you. Oh, it's right here where I had this, isn't it? You recognize this? <laughs> anyway, First uh, Peter four twelve through 16, where Peter writes this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. How often does something bad happen to us and, and we're like, why would this happen to me? You know, that's my favorite wine. Anyway, it's something very strange happening to me. But rather, Peter writes, rejoice insofar as that you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're going to experience Jesus's glory, you're also going to have to share in his sufferings. That's just the way it works. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of, of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Uh, now, now the, the thing I really like about that last part of that little passage is essentially what Peter's saying is, listen, there's enough suffering in this world without you going and looking for it. Okay, so this is not a call for you to go and look for it. Look how spiritual I am. I am looking for ways to suffer. That's not what Peter's saying, and that's actually counterproductive. What Peter is saying is, don't go looking for suffering. Don't, do, don't sin uh, in ways that are going to cause you to suffer. Don't become a murderer or a thief. Don't, don't do stupid, foolish things. There's enough suffering already, but you need to remember that Christ has covered that suffering for us already. Okay? So that's also really important for this community thing. And then verse 7, Paul wraps this little discussion in verses 3 through 7 by reiterating that where there is suffering for the Christian, there is also hope and the promise of comfort because we have Christ. Then he goes on to verses 8 through 11. Let me read that 
uh, for us. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from uh, such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by, in, by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So what happens in verse 8 is Paul now begins to do, he transitions into a little bit of housekeeping. And the rest of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 is a little bit of housekeeping. So uh, this verse talks about the affliction that they suffered in Asia. So what were he... Uh, Paul's and his companions' affliction in, afflictions in Asia. By Asia, that, that means that area, especially around Ephesus. Okay? So they had some trouble in Ephesus. They were in Ephesus, and literally at one point while they were in Ephesus planting the church, they thought that they would be mob executed because their preaching of the gospel was interrupting the pagan marketplace. If you, you can read in Acts about this. Their preaching of the gospel was interrupting the pagan marketplace. So what was happening in the pagan marketplace in in, uh, Ephesus is they were selling all of these little idols and votives and false gods, these little statues and figurines. And now Paul comes in and says, there's only one God and we know who he is. It's Jesus Christ. By implication, it's not any of these statues or votives or figurines. And so people started coming to Jesus and quit going into the Ephesus marketplace and buying their goods, you know. So all the uh, retailers, I'll just use a 21st century word, all the retailers got angry at Paul and his uh, group of church planters and they decided that they were going to have a riot and go after Paul. You can read about it uh, in the book of Acts. So just let me ask this rhetorical question. Could you imagine what would happen in our marketplace today our mob of consumer goods and services, if everyone, motivated by a desire to live a gospel-centered life, started to buy, use, and practice only according to biblical principles and what the gospel called us to. Wouldn't that be weird? I mean, you would have certain sections of the marketplace that would be very angry at the church because it would hurt their business. Now, let me just be really clear. It wouldn't hurt all businesses. Um, certainly, I would still go to Zinberger. So Zinberger's business would not be hurt, okay? That's not an unbiblical business at all. It's, it's very glorifying to God. But there are certain businesses that would, that would struggle with this, okay? Um, and Paul wasn't kidding when he writes that they in Ephesus despaired of life itself. The Greek word literally means that they had no known way at the time that they were going to escape their impending doom. They thought they were going to die. It was a mess. But then in verse 10 he says, He, God, will deliver us again. So here's Paul. Paul has seen now at this point, Paul has seen God work so many times in his life, saving him, delivering him, and healing him when all seemed lost. Remember, it was just 10 years earlier when in... um, uh, Is it Iconium, outside of Iconium? One of those other uh, towns uh, east of Ephesus where he was trying to plant a church 
and they got so mad at him that they took him outside of the of the town. They threw him down in a ditch and they and they stoned him. You can read about that in, in the book of Acts as well. And they thought they had killed him. They left him because they thought that he was dead. And yet God pulled him out of that as well. He's had that happen to him so many times that now he has the confidence that God will continue to do so. And Paul, by this time, has started to develop this theology that we see in Philippians 1, where even if his deliverance means physical death, because he eventually begins to view his physical death as a type of deliverance. Read Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. He, he begins to see that as a type of deliverance, too, when, when he starts to say, you know, I, I don't know which would be better, to stay here or to just die and be with Jesus, because it sounds to me like that would be way better than to stay here. So he sees that even as a form of deliverance. So even if he was killed, he's saying, God is going to be faithful to me. So I think here is, a, is just a good reminder of one of the things we've been talking about on Sunday morning that I keep sort of pounding away on, uh, is the, the main problem that the people of Israel always seemed to have was that they forgot who God was, they forgot who God is, you know, they, they decided they wanted a human king when they already had God the king, Yahweh the king. Uh, they also did not remember what God had done for them. Again, how often in the Old Testament, you see it all the way through the Old Testament, the Torah, through the history books, through the prophets, everything in the Old Testament, how often God says, I am the Lord your God, the one who brought you up out of Egypt, reminding them, I'm God, and this is what I did for you, okay? How often do they forget that, and then how often do they forget what God is actually doing for them in that moment? And the, and the challenge is, is that you and I need to re remember that as well, constantly remember that. And Paul would say that the Corinthians need to remember that too. They really struggle to be able to remember those things. And then in verse 11, because Paul says that the only thing he needs from them in the midst uh, of, uh, of their trouble is prayer, it reminds them and us that it is only God who can save us from our afflictions. So here's some application, and I know this is going to be a little bit tough now. A couple tough, kind of tough things. So afflictions, tribulation, suffering, challenges. Uh, and I know this is tough because it's tough for me, and I assume that you're very much like me in this particular way. Okay? Sometimes God causes or allows things in our life that makes us despair to certain depths. We can get depressed. We can have anxiety. We have a loss of worldly hope. Um, we just struggle with tribulation. There are several places in the, scripture, in the scriptures that, that talk about what it's like for us to be in tribulation, to be encountering trials. Sometimes God causes or allows those things to happen to us so that we will finally realize that the only place we have is to turn to Jesus. It's the only place we have. We keep turning to ourselves. We keep turning to our, our clever solutions. The only real, genuine hope we have is in Christ. It's a way of pushing us there. Uh, I think Tyler and I talked about that this last Sunday when we said, um, listen, isn't it interesting how it was uh, when David achieved everything that he could have ever hoped to achieve 
that he let his guard down and that's when he quit seeking after God and that's when he got into trouble. You know, um, we have the tendency to seek God when, when it's not going so well. So sometimes that's God's discipline in our life. And it is only natural that we think we have the answers to our afflictions, sufferings, and tribulations. Let me just mention this about that. We, we're pretty sure we have the answer. Look, I can, I can diagnose my problem and I can, I can come up with the, uh, the, the solution, the medicine, or whatever it is. Uh, let me just give you one example of how, how foolish that is. Because we're experiencing this in a huge way in our culture today. Um, research has shown, maybe you know this, I hope you do. Research has shown that digital communication and social media, which I'm not saying we should get rid of it, that's not what I'm saying at all, you got to learn how to manage it somehow, because it's not all good. But these, these things, digital communication and social media, has exponentially increased in young people anxiety, stress, and suicidal tendencies. Suicide is like going through the roof, okay? Uh, and, it's, and it's all due to, it's not a correlation anymore. They have determined there's a cause and effect. Here's the most interesting part of that research. Those people who are depressed and anxious and having suicidal thoughts because of this, they believe that the solution is that they need to be better at this. They need to be on their phone more often. They need to have greater sec, um, not sec, not greater sec, greater social media prowess. They need to have more followers. They need to have more platforms. They need to have more blogs. They need to do more on that. They, 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 it, it's like a heroin addict saying, I'll just be fine if I can have more heroin. Okay? That's a problem. We all have this idea that we can diagnose the problem and we can fix it with our own cleverness. Because what we want is we want, at worst, at worst, we just want that silver bullet where it just gets fired once and it's over like that and then you're fixed. You just suffer for a minute. Maybe we could put up with that. But most of the time, we're trying to eliminate our suffering by just doing more of what's causing us to suffer. And the research is absolutely impeccable on this. And it's a problem. Okay? It really is a problem. So... What, what God would say is that it's actually a discipline for us to go through certain things in order to learn to look to God and to rely on Him. So when we suffer, we should be willing to slow down and ask some questions. First of all, did I do anything to cause this suffering? And if I did, maybe I need to look at what I did and stop that or learn from that. That's, that's James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 right there. Uh, what can I learn from this? That's also James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Then we should be asking, what, do, what, do, what is it that God is doing in the midst of this? I've got to figure out what God's trying to do. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be um, withdrawing from God and community. I should be pressing into God and community, trying to figure out what he's doing in the midst of this. And then, and then the last question is, how is God revealing himself to me in the midst of this? Because if I believe that God is real and I believe that Jesus is resurrected and I believe I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, God can reveal himself to me. And I should be sensitive to that. I have, as Tom Schrader used to say, I have the decoder. I have the Holy Spirit. Okay? And now I also know this is tough. So that was the first tough thing. Here's the second tough thing. Um, often people need to be reminded that their afflictions should be also put into perspective. 
Okay? Paul's afflictions and suffering, his afflictions and his suffering, all of that, actually worse than what they were experiencing at Corinth. Way worse. So one of the things he's trying to do is gently prod them into understanding that uh, they don't have it nearly as bad as Paul has had. Okay? This is one reason why serving others when you're in affliction is one of the best medicines you can take. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but if you're really struggling with your faith, you're having tribulation, you're suffering, find a way to serve somebody else. It helps put things into perspective. Okay? And I know that's counterintuitive, but it's true. So Paul is also letting them know that affliction is part of the human condition, but we need to rely on God in the midst of that. And Paul does here what he also does a few times in 1 Corinthians. He simply says, in a manner of speaking, he says, Hey, you think you know what's going on? I have way more experience in these things than you do. You think you've got it all figured out. You need to talk to me. Because I've, I've had way more experience in this than you have. So now he moves on. Um, yet he continues in the context of the uh, trouble they experienced in Ephesus. But now he starts dealing with some other things that have kind of upset the Corinthians. So verses 12 through 14. He says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. We, we treated you in a godly way. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. By the way, let me talk about that uh, Greek word translated... Uh, Sincerity. He says, um, we behaved toward you with godly sincerity. So the word sincerity literally means without flaw or without crack. So in the first century, you know, there would be um, people who would uh, sell pottery. And I don't know if you've noticed, but pottery has a tendency to break when it falls over or when you drop it. Have you ever noticed that? Okay. So what they would do in the first century is they, that's a loss of inventory. They'd have to take a loss on it if they just trashed it. So if the break wasn't too bad, what they would do is they would melt wax and they would uh, put it back together with wax and then they'd polish it up and finish it up and they'd make sure that the wax was stained the color of the rest of the pottery. But if you look very, very closely at the, at the pot or the piece of pottery or whatever, you, you, can, you can detect the flaws that it was broken at some point, and that's wax in there. It's not actual pottery. And so if you were a smart pottery buyer, you would look for pottery that was sincere, that was without flaw. So Paul's using this word that means our godliness to you was without sin or without, uh, without flaw. It was without an agenda. It was without anything that was broken. Does that make sense? Okay, I, I, you know, I'm a word nerd, so I love these words. Anyway, so verse 12, although Paul and his companions were persecuted in Ephesus for the Christianity, he's saying we didn't do anything to deserve this persecution. That's the first thing he says in verse 12. He's telling them that in, in Corinth. So have you, ever, have you ever seen somebody pick a fight, a verbal fight or a physical fight? I'm sure you have. A verbal fight or a physical fight. They, and they pick this fight with someone who is do, doing nothing more than minding their own business. 
Okay? That's what Paul said was happening to them or happened to them in Ephesus. But Paul is also using this verse to more generally proclaim that his whole ministry has been marked by simplicity, by wisdom, by sincerity, and by an altruism that's perpetuated by the gospel. So then in verses 13 and 14, he reminds the Corinthians that he also writes to them in the same way, and he hopes he can count on the Corinthians to do the same, to live in gospel simplicity, wisdom, sincerity, and altruism. But now, these next several verses, we get into a bit of a sticky wicket with which Paul has to deal. Um, Our staff, by the way, it's written in my notes, sticky wicket. Um, Apparently, they're compiling a a, a list of things that I constantly say. And one of them is sticky wicket. (laughs) So, anyway, there it is. Okay, so... Uh, whatever. All right, so uh, he gets into this sticky wicket that he has to deal with, with the, uh, this problem that he has to deal with with the Corinthians. He now explains why he changed his recent travel plans to not include Corinth when he said at the end of 1 Corinthians, remember, he said, I'm going to come and visit you. But in the intermediary time, he decided I'm not going to come visit them, and that really upset them. So he tries to explain that, verses 14 through 24. I'm sorry. We'll start at 15 through 24. So because, of the, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Remember, he's collecting the money for uh, Jerusalem. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, uh, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I will call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to you again in Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So, having just in the previous few verses defending and advocating for his general integrity, Paul now explains why that integrity undergirds his travel plan decisions, which the Corinthians got upset about. So Paul's plans to visit that he laid out at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 apparently were changed so that he wouldn't come and see them once, but he he decided, I'm going to go see you twice. I'm going to give you this second grace. Well, apparently, when the Corinthians found out that he wasn't just going to come once, but he was going to come twice, that upset the Corinthians. And it caused them to start again criticizing Paul, talking trash about uh, Paul. So then Paul decides, you know what? Not out of spite. He just decides, I think it would be, 
I would do the Corinthians a favor if I just didn't go see them. If I just left them alone, that would make them happy, <laughs> okay? So I'm not going to go see them. So I'm not going to visit them on my way back. And I guess you could probably see their point. Given a lack of information that Paul is now attempting to provide, it does seem like Paul was vacillating. I'm going to come see you. I'm going to come see you twice. Now I'm not going to come see you at all. They don't have any of the information as to why he's vacillating, okay? So in verse 17, Paul argues that he makes his plans according to the Lord's direction and not according to worldly vacillations or preferences. He says he and Timothy and Silvanus. Okay, so Silvanus is uh, Silas. You probably know him as Silas in the New Testament. I call him Sly for short. So if you ever hear me, you call him Sly. That's who it is. So what he's saying is we're not yes and no people. Our yes means yes, our no means no. Have you ever had a friend, and for all the wrong reasons, uh, meaning in your friend, you found it hard to depend on their yes or on their no? Have you ever had one of those persons? You knew that they would say yes and that, and, and they rarely would follow through. When they said yes, they rarely follow through. Or when you need them to say no, they don't follow through on the no. It becomes a yes. I, I've had friends like this. They're very frustrating. You know, that's why, like, if I say I'm going to be somewhere, I like to show up. I like to be somewhere. You know, I like to, I like my yes to be yes and my no to be no. And it seems to me that in the Gospels, Jesus said something like that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay. So <clears throat> they think Paul's become one of those persons that they can't count on. But Paul argues that he does not arbitrarily change his mind. His mind and his ministry are submitted to Christ. That's embedded in this argument here. He says, Corinthians, you've misunderstood and you've consequently criticized me unfairly and in great haste. So now I'm trying to explain the situation to you. <clears throat> Have you ever been criticized by somebody without you getting the opportunity to sell, tell your side of the story? Of course you have. So have I. So that's what Paul's saying here. Okay. And Paul argues, I would add convincingly, in verses 21 and 22, that it is because he stands firm in Christ, as do the Corinthians. Notice that he keeps building up the Corinthians even as he's rebuking them. You know, uh, I'm going to see you in heaven. You're going to see me in heaven. Everything's fine. We're all still saints, but you've got this issue, Corinthians. But he's saying, my travel plans are coming from a sincere heart of love and what's best for you. That's why it's happening this way. And he closes this section by invoking both God and Paul's own wisdom about the change of plans. Paul was truly hoping to spare their feelings by changing his plans to exclude the Corinthians. He's like, I, I don't want to bother them. Now that's a lot of scripture. That's 11, 10 verses. 10 verses over what seems to be a fairly minor uh, misunderstanding and squabble. But apparently it was not so minor that Paul shouldn't address it. He decided to take 10 verses to address it. Okay. So, enough of the squabbling that Paul continues his defense um, in the first four verses of chapter 2. So, he's, he's saying, look, this is so important that I'm going to go on in chapter 2 in the first four verses and I'm going to keep talking about this, this problem. So, I think we have time to do it. We'll do it. 
But, I, but before we do, I just want to throw this out there. Okay, In the first four verses of chapter 2, he's still going to talk about this issue of his integrity and the change of his plans and what the Corinthians think of him. And yet we have this chapter break, right? How often have I talked about how much I love chapter and verse uh, division? I love chapters and verses because it's a GPS system. It's an address. I can find something really fast. I don't have the Bible memorized like the Apostle Paul had the Old Testament memorized. I don't, I don't have that, so I need the chapters and verses. But the problems with chapters and verses is uh, where they're placed often makes us think that we're done with one thing and moving on to another thing, and that doesn't happen a lot of the times. So look at verses two, 1 through 4. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one, uh, but the one whom I have pained? <laughs> so... I'm going to go, you're going to be miserable, and the only people who might be able to cheer me up are people who are mad at me. (laughs) That's not going to happen. Okay? Um, And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of the heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Okay. Might, be, might feel like a bit of piling on by Paul, but it's really not, especially when we take a closer look at it. Paul is getting at some things that we also need to understand. Paul is further explaining his thinking about these visits. When he visited Corinth the first time, he was met with attacks, criticism, poor church operations, and bad teaching. It was really painful. I used to be uh, in retail and restaurant management. It was no fun when I would visit a store that I, like I I was a regional director. It was no fun to visit a store where uh, the store was a mess, it looked terrible, was not ready for any sort of presentation to me, let alone the customers, okay? And everybody, in, everybody who works in the store is really upset, unhappy with their job, unhappy with me, unhappy with the world, unhappy with their church, unhappy with everybody. They're unhappy with everybody. I mean, you, you know, you're just like, I, I want to go to the happy store. You know, I want to go to the store that's well-prepared. I want to go to the restaurant where you don't walk into the kitchen and get nervous about people getting sick. You know what I mean? You all have watched that dude with the blonde hair that yells at everybody in the kitchens. What's his name? Ramsey? Is that it? Gordon Ramsey? Yeah, that's his name. Okay. Yeah, by the way, his most famous restaurant, you know, is in Scottsdale. The one that he did was in Scottsdale. Did you ever see that episode? It's like the only episode of Gordon Ramsey I ever watched. It was uh, Amy's Bakery Cafe in Scottsdale. It's the only restaurant where, in the middle of it, he finally threw up his hands and said, I can't help you. I'm leaving. It's the only time he ever left a restaurant and said, I can't help you, I'm leaving. (laughs) And so then this woman, Amy, had t-shirts made. We're the ones that foiled Gordon Ramsay. (laughs) She sold a lot of t-shirts but didn't sell any food because everybody's going, well, obviously their kitchen's a mess, you know. But she sold a lot of t-shirts. Anyway, it's not there anymore. It it closed. And it closed before COVID. So uh, she went out of business. Anyway, it was painful for him to go to Corinth. So he knew if he went back, it would only escalate and be more painful. So he wrote them instead in order to try to keep the emotion out of it, which is sort of ironic because he's doing it out of love, which is an emotion. 
but it's a love that's willing to confront sin, uh, to confront destructive ways, and to confront ungodly attitudes, all of which were plaguing the church in Corinth. And yet after this paragraph, Paul gets to move on to some more positive things. But before we do that, we should discuss the practical aspects of what Paul is saying here and what he did. First of all, do you, do you, I, I've already mentioned this, but I'll say it again. Do you like hanging out with people who only want to criticize you, attack you, and hate you, and tell you how awful you are? Yeah, are those your favorite people to hang out with? No, you know. Uh, I have a friend who used to say, um, that person has a grace face, and that person has a grump face. <laughs> okay, and it's more fun to be around the grace face people. Okay, so Paul's trying to get up that. You don't feel encouraged and built up by that. Um, so here's the thing. We also have to recognize, though, that even though some people can be grumpy, sometimes we do deserve criticism. Sometimes we do deserve to have the truth spoken to us, right? We do deserve, I mean, we need that input, okay? Um, but you can blow that by not presenting that truth in a way that can be heard. So I've been on both sides of this issue before, where I have presented the truth to somebody. Oh, it's truth. It's absolutely right. I'm 100% right. Man, this person's going to be corrected. But you saw how he presented it, only even worse than that. They, they couldn't hear it. They were more afraid than anything. <laughs> you know, and, they, and so they couldn't hear it. So it did no good. It just escalated the situation, okay? So being able to communicate this stuff in a way that somebody can hear it, okay? That's, that's the first thing that's, that, that's really hard for us. We have to sort of count to 10. I have to sort of count to 10, let things calm down, and then, and then go at it. And so even if your criticism is correct, but you commute it in such a way that uh, nobody can hear it, it's not going to do anybody any good. So Paul has every right to be held in respect and honor and dignity, even as they criticize him. But they weren't doing that to him. So he didn't, he didn't really want to really go there. So that's true in, in marriage and in romantic relationships and friendships and co-working relationships. It's true in your neighborhood. It's true in the church. It's true in, at school. It's true everywhere. But here's the other problem, and we'll end with this tonight. The other problem, though, is that unfortunately, as many of you probably know, we now live in an overly sensitive culture that cannot stand what genuine love actually entails. That means that um, even when we do speak the truth with genuine love and compassion and empathy, they're not interested. Just not interested. Uh, the only way you can love me is if you always affirm me, no matter how destructive I'm being to myself and to others. That's the only way you can love me. Otherwise, you're not being loving. Okay, uh, that's a problem. So we live in a culture where love is no longer defined, allowed, or considered rational if love contains us trying to keep somebody from killing themselves or destroying themselves. So scripture talks about this. This is Proverbs 27. The wounds of a friend are faithful, but many are the kisses of the enemy. So if all you're doing is affirming people as they're, as they're running off a cliff, that, those are the wounds of an enemy. Those are not the, the kisses of somebody who loves you. Okay? So, um, and I know most of you realize this has been a bailiwick of mine lately. There's another word, bailiwick. Uh, they've been writing it down. 
Uh, it's been a bailiwick of mine lately, and I could talk for another 90 minutes on this, but if you haven't already, uh, either read or get the audio version of Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, Terry, I think you just read it, didn't you? Or you're reading it now? You're listening to it now? What? Oh, you're doing Dopamine Nation now? Did you, did you read uh, Rise and Triumph, or are you going to? I thought you said maybe you had it on your queue. Oh, yeah, that also, yeah, that's Jonathan Haidt and uh, Greg Lukianoff's book. Yeah, that's important, too. But uh, I'm telling you, uh, read Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. You're going to have so many aha moments as you're reading that, I'm telling you, or listening to it. All right, so that's it for tonight. We're going to start at um, chapter 2, verse 5 next week. And that's where, remember in chapter, uh, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul said, you need to correct that sinner that's doing something that even the pagans would be ashamed of. Remember that? Okay, now he's going to say, okay, you've corrected him, but now you're, now you're punishing him way too much. You need to forgive him. <laughs> so that's what we're going to start with next week. Let me pray. And we'll be on our way. Uh, our gracious God in heaven, we thank you and praise you. And, and uh, we do acknowledge that you're God. And we thank you for what you've done for us on the cross through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for what you're doing for us now. Uh, God, just give us the courage to be people of, as Paul says, godly sincerity. That we'd be people of your word and your will and your wisdom. And God, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.